Our scripture reading today comes from Revelation 18, 1 through 13. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice coming from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her inequities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a measure of tournament and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this re reasons, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her tournament and say, Alas, alas, your great city, your mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What if I were to ask you, what is the most important moral issue of our time? What would come to your mind? It may be pornography. It may be abortion. It may be racial inequality. But what if there's another moral issue that many of us often overlook? Something that impacts all of our lives and shapes our neighbors' lives. Something we infrequently mention. In one word, it is the word economics. Each morning we wake up to an economic world, all of us, from the latte we buy on the way to work, the car we drive, the house we live in, the charities we give to, or the retirement portfolio we build. All of us live in an economic world. And the economic systems and choices we make every day really matter. How we create, value, monetize our economic exchange really matters. 
It's not surprising then that the Bible speaks a lot about money, wealth, and economics. The Bible asserts that our economic lives, our behavior, our choices that we participate in really matter as matters of morality. And one of the biggest challenges of our lives each day is how we navigate this complex economic world, how we wisely live in it. And with this comes a very important question for each one of us. How do we, as apprentices of Jesus, steward well the economic world we live in? If you've brought a Bible with you or have a Bible with you, please turn with me to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. In Revelation chapter 17, uh, today, we are looking as a church family in a very important text. As a church family, we are trekking through this book, and the literary terrain, yes, is very difficult. But let's remember that Revelation is first a letter written to seven churches. But it is a letter with different literary genre. It fills us with images and metaphors, and it's hard to sort of grasp. Most of us do not understand its literary genre. But as we walk through it, it's something that is very familiar to the first century reader and very unfamiliar to us. Now keep that in mind as we go. And many of us approach this book of Revelation thinking it will reveal great truths about the future. Now, this book does speak about the future, clearly. But let me just say Revelation's primary aim is to reveal more about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him in our present lives in a fallen and broken world. So before diving in our text, let's set the backdrop of where we are in this letter. Since the end of chapter six, there's a primary literary thread that emerges. It is the wrath of the lamb, God's judgment on the earth. And as we come to chapter 16, the wrath of God continues, and you will see that, and the imagery is now portrayed in the seven bowls of judgment on earth. And as chapter 16 concludes, the seventh bowl of judgment is unleashed on the earth, and we are introduced in verse 19 to the fury of God's wrath being poured out on Babylon. Now you'll notice this theme of judgment on Babylon will continue all through the rest of the book. Now keep in mind, John's portrayal of the worldly city of Babylon presents a glaring contrast to the godly city, the new city of Jerusalem, which will emerge in a glorious crescendo that I'm excited for us to get to in chapter 21. So as we consider chapter 17, chapter 18, and the first part of chapter 19 today, I want us to see that John uses three symbols, primary symbols, to convey his progression of thought. You'll notice this progression, Babylon, the Lamb, and the Bride. And from that flows three main truths from these three main symbols that frame our thoughts for today. First, idolatrous Babylon will fall. Secondly, the slain Lamb will triumph, and the faithful Bride will be ready. Okay, so let's look at the first symbol and the truth that flows from it. That is, the idolatrous Babylon will fall. Now look with me at chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and seven horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. 
and on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And when we hear this, we go, wow, this is really intense language. Think about the great prostitute, sexual immorality, drunkenness, blasphemous, abominations, impurities. You go, wow. So what's going on here? We need to understand that Babylon is representing something. From a literary standpoint, it is a literary architect. Now, what do I mean by a literary architect, or we may say specifically an archetype of that architecture? What I mean by a literary archetype is a repeating pattern across time. So in the context here, the word Babylon has a very negative connotation, just hearing it. It portrays something throughout human history and biblical history, and it's one thing alone, and that is idolatry. Think of it in our context like the word Nazi or Hitler, right? It has a negative connotation of idolatry, and idolatry and Babylon and Revelation fit hand to glove. They are literally synonymous. So a quick, back, uh, quick peek back in history helps us remember that the magnificent gardens of Babylon were once one of the ancient wonders of the world. If we look back at the book of Dab, uh, Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar had reasons to boast of Babylon's greatness. There was nothing equal to it in the world, clearly. The city of Babylon was overflowing with stunning opulence, massive economic power, and unstoppable military might. Babylon was an economic and military superpower, but had no recognition or regard for the one true God at all. Now notice in verse 18, its power, Babylon the great prostitute, exercises dominion over all the kings of the earth. In other words, the kings of the earth bowed in homage to Babylon's great economic and military power. So what is John doing here, not only with Babylon, but the image of prostitute? What does all this sexualized imagery represent? It's almost explicit in the Hebrew text. Now, sexual immorality was very much a part of Babylon. But this, notice, is not where the wrath of God here is primarily focused in chapter 17 and 18. I want you to notice that. John, like many biblical writers before him, for example, like the prophet Hosea, employ this imagery of marital infidelity and compare it with religious infidelity. And keep that in mind. The moral and emotional revulsion of an affair with a prostitute is meant to carry over to the revulsion of idolatry before God. So here in this context, John has a specific kind of infidelity in mind. It is economic or money or wealth idolatry. So John is painting this heart-arresting picture of those who support an economy and make economic choices that go against God's purposes. He is saying it is like having an affair with a prostitute. Now notice John's inspired pen focuses on Babylon's great fall in chapter 18. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. John writes, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth, notice, have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Here, John opens the portals of heaven and gives us a glimpse 
of why Babylon falls. And it's not a pretty picture. You will notice it is a damning indictment with demonic overtones. Now, chapter 18 also points out persecution and violence. Clearly, that was there. But John wants us to see that the main culprit for Babylon's fall and idolatry is economic seduction. Economic seduction that led to the idolatry of money, wealth, and luxury. And set against what he describes as a heartbreaking economic collapse, we observe the repeated emphasis of a phrase, merchants and luxurious living. Notice that. The original Greek language that John uses connotes the idea of excessive luxury, self-indulgence, but also arrogance and reckless exercise of power. Now, Liz and I recently watched the movie. It's not the greatest profound movie. Maybe you've seen it. It's called Crazy uh, Rich Asians. And again, it's not a profound movie, but it, if you've seen it, it depicts an affluent context where every human whim, every imaginable desire is immediately at the fingertips of the super rich. This is a similar picture John is painting here. I want you to notice in chapter 18, and read it carefully later, the long list of the luxurious cargo that is being carried into Babylon in verses 11 to 13. Notice, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn, it's an economic collapse for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloths, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, fran frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves. That is human soul. What a list. And including human trafficking. Do you see that? All for economic gain and consumptive indulgence. Now let's remember that the economic system of John's first century world was a sum-zero economy. What do we mean by that? What we mean by that is that wealth was a fixed pie, and it was tied to tangible finite assets like land, right? That meant by necessity that one person's gain, right, was another person's loss. Think of it as an economic teeter-totter, right? One goes up, one goes down by its very nature. In other words, when one person or a city got wealthier, that simply meant other persons inevitably or cities got poorer. That's the picture. Now, today's modern economy is not a fixed pie because wealth is not tied just to finite assets like land. But having said that, the economic idolatry described here in the first century, again, is not tied to a particular economic system, but rather to the fallen human heart that makes wealth and material comforts an idol in any system. See, not only is this idolatry abhorrent to God, what John is telling us is timeless, that often economic idolatry leads to economic injustice. So underneath the wealth of Babylon and its idolatrous attachments was a massive oppression of many for the self-indulgence of the few. Now think about this for a moment. In Revelation 18, we have an entire chapter, entire chapter, a long chapter devoted to the divine judgment of Babylon. Why? Primarily for its economic idolatry. Now the language of the great prostitute in the very graphic descriptions 
of economic injustice tied to the immoral idolatry of material wealth and personal comfort is arresting. And they are designed to do that. They are designed not only to grab our mind, but our heart. And they are to help us see the very seductive nature, the seriousness of what many of us often overlook or dismiss as not that big, deal, big of a deal in the world. Now, one biblical commentator captures this text well. This quote is a little longer, but it's so rich with insight, I want you to hear it carefully, slowly, with mind and heart. Hear what he writes. The lesson that God would judge a city for its economic practices is a sobering thought. Economics is clearly a moral issue in the book of Revelation. The fact that much of the condemnation appears to stem from self-indulgence should hit with particular force at modern consumer culture. But the most worrisome thing of all is that Babylon looks so close to the New Jerusalem. God did create a good world. We are meant to enjoy life. God does delight in the beautiful things of the earth. If the world system were a self-evident cesspool, he writes, the temptation for Christians to fall to its allures would be very small. It is precisely the genuine benefits of technological advance and extensive trading networks that constitute the danger. Babylon promises all the glories of Eden without the intrusive presence of God. Hmm. It slowly but inex inexhaustibly twists the good gifts of God, economic exchange, agricultural abundance, diligent craftsmanship into the service of false gods. Wow. See, divine judgment over economic idolatry and injustice that it often perpetuates should cause all of us to pause, me and you, to reflect on your heart and my heart in our current cultural context. Has your heart, has my heart been captured by the idolatry of money, of wealth, comfort, and economic security? Is Babylon an archetype that is fitting for your heart and mine, your lifestyle and mine? In the 20th century, Francis Schaeffer described two distinguishing allurements of our Babylonian culture. I love how he says this. He describes them, think with me, as personal peace and affluence. Personal peace and affluence. He means by personal peace that self-absorbed, undisturbed, comfortable life. And affluence is a life consisting of more and more things more and more consumption. Now let me say, biblically, there is a place to enjoy and celebrate God's material blessings. But there's also a need for sober reflection in our call to wise stewardship. Do we recognize the moral injustices driven often by economic idolatry in our own time? Now there are many, many examples of this. Economic injustices, including, we'll just give you some of them, currency manipulation globally, sex trafficking, racial discriminatory practices, slave labor, unfair trade practices, all these things are part of our global supply chain. But I want to highlight one in particular, mainly because of its egregious nature and massive scale. It is the multi-billion dollar abortion industry. This is a personification of Babylon in our time. Organizations like Planned Parenthood make massive profits from the legalized destruction of the unborn. Let me just give you an example. In 2018, Planned Parenthood reported almost $245 million in profits. 
more than a double the year before. And driving this grave injustice is both the idolatry of personal autonomy or choice and money, lots of it at every level. Let me just give you another example. In 2017, reported, the president of Planned Parenthood, Cecil Richard, made almost a million dollars in salary. Now, I could go on and on about this, but while we must be vigilant in addressing this egregious injustice of organizations like Planned Parenthood, let me simply say that if you've been impacted by abortion, we are not here to judge you. We are here to love you and encourage you that Jesus wants to bring healing and hope to you. Whether it is the first century or 21st century, John reminds us that idolatrous Babylon will fall but he also reminds us of a second hopeful truth. And what a hopeful truth it is, that Jesus the slain lamb will triumph. In chapter 17, when Babylon, the great mother of the prostitute, is introduced, John describes, notice chapter 17, verse 14, that Babylon and the beast will make war on the lamb, which we know from chapter 5 is a picture of Jesus and our crucified and risen Savior. In verse 14, we read, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are called and chosen and faithful. You see, in the midst of the outpouring wrath of the Lamb, we are given this microburst of gospel hope. Jesus, who made an atoning sacrifice for a sinful and rebellious world, for you and for me, will fully triumph over sin, Satan, and evil. And with the triumphant Lamb, notice, will be the triumphant church. Followers of Jesus who have lived and will live in the midst of the demonic allurements of Babylon's idolatry. They are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. John now unveils, in the beginning of verse 19, the future destiny of the church, who remain faithful witnesses. And notice the third hopeful truth, that the faithful bride will be ready for the bridegroom. Suddenly, in a microburst of heavenly praise, the faithful and beautiful bride of Christ is unveiled before our awestruck eyes. What a glaring contrast to unfaithful Babylon the prostitute. Look with me at chapter 19, verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I have to tell you that I love weddings. Few things are uh, more joyful for me to be a part than to be a part of a wedding. But I've never been a part of a grand wedding like this <laughs> that John describes here. John gives the most glorious description of Jesus and his church in this grand marriage banquet celebration. Here we have a picture of that future, the church universal and triumphant has now finally arrived at its wedding day. And we will see later in our series in chapter 21, the beautiful home that awaits Christ's bride, the home Jesus promised to his disciples in that upper room, he would prepare for them the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and earth. We see here that paradise once lost in Eden is now regained in the new Jerusalem. The biblical story has gone full circle from garden to a garden city. That is our glorious hope, even in the midst of a very difficult moment in our lives. What glorious hope we have. Babylon will fall, the lamb will triumph, and the faithful bride will be ready for our ultimate wedding day. But now we live in the time between, don't we? And we are called to live faithful lives in an idolatrous Babylonian world. How do we do that? 
What does it mean for you and me? And in this text this morning, we're reminded that our economic choices and the economic systems that we indwell matter in this matter of Christian faithfulness. We are called to wisely navigate and steward well our economic life in a very, very Babylonian world. And if you've not read our book, The Economics and Neighborly Love, this would be the first and great action point for you because we unpack it in a much fuller way. Also now there's a study guide for a small group to read and work together. You may think of that for your group and it's at Made to Flourish, a study guide for the economics and never love. Just go madetoflourish.org. As we apply God's word to our lives this morning, besides that book I recommend, I'd like us to take inventory around our daily economic choices. We all have a money trail, don't we? A money trail that reflects our true values, our heart loves, our priorities. Let me ask you, what is your money trail telling you? I'd like us to consider three questions to reflect on this week. And if you are married, I'd suggest you have a conversation with your spouse around these three questions. Three questions. First, are economic decisions leading us to lifestyle creep? Now, lifestyle creep can affect all of us. That is, when our income and wealth grows, our lifestyles increase with it commensurately. When our economic capacity grows, our material wealth grows, our money grows, it can be distorting, even blinding. The great uh, industrialist John Rockefeller was asked once, I mean, he had just massive amounts of wealth, how much more he needed. And his classic answer was just one more dollar. And his response is telling to every human heart, to yours and mine. It's not just revealing about Mr. Rockefeller, it's revealing for you and me. How much more do we need? And the sense is, just a little bit more. See, money and wealth can be good things, and they can be used in good ways. But let's be transparent. They can be blinding. So much of economic idolatry and economic injustice is simply driven by greed. The Bible repeatedly reminds us of the peril of greed in your life and mine, and its blinding nature. And let's remember Jesus' words to the local church earlier in Revelation, the church of Revelation, the church of Laodicea. Chapter 3, Jesus says to Laodicea in verse 7, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Wow. It's very easy to continue to accumulate more and more, isn't it? To increase our lifestyle without prayerfully discerning if we should do that. Now, we may have freedom to increase our lifestyle or pursue a more comfortable or luxurious life. But the question for the follower of Jesus, is this the best stewardship of our economic resources? And are we simply comparing ourselves with others who have more, right? There's always those. Rather than, again, seeking God's will for the lifestyle he specifically wants for us. And are we looking too much to material things to bring us joy, rather than in greater intimacy with God and others? It is our lifestyle, often, that pursues us to a pseudo-joy. One that's appealing, alluring, seductive but ultimately not satisfying. And what about having a handful of wise followers of Jesus who will assist you, who will give you input in your economic decisions and lifestyle choices? And what does the spiritual discipline of simplicity look like for you? How would it help you avoid the allurement of economic Babylonian idolatry in your life? How would it bring greater joy in your life? and the depth of your relationships? How would it help you better steward the economic resources God has entrusted to you? The second question is, are economic decisions helping the vulnerable to flourish? 
See, when our economic capacity grows, it's easy to become economically isolated. That was true in the first century, it's true today. We can find ourselves in a cultural bubble, an economic bubble, where we have little exposure and contact with the economically poor. And Jesus' words in Matthew 25 call us to take initiatives to seek the flourishing of the vulnerable in our world. And he does it in the context of the end days, of giving account to God for the stewardship of our lives and resources. And Jesus reminds us of the importance of caring for the vulnerable. He describes the hungry, the stranger, the sick, the imprisoned. And then Jesus says something truly shocking. He says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And Jesus' half-brother, James, describes the true faith is caring for the orphans and widows. Helping the vulnerable to flourish, again, is more than just giving financial resources to them. That may be a part of it, but there is much more. It's not merely a hand out, but a hand up. It is leveling the economic field. Encouraging, for example, economic policy that lowers barriers for economic opportunity. It is about job creation, job training, microloans, for example, impact investing, modern day gleaning that allows the economically vulnerable to have personal dignity and to grow in economic strength and flourishing. One of the heroes that I have followed for many years is John Perkins. John Perkins endured incredible racial injustice and economic injustice in his life. And he's become a powerful voice for change in our culture, a true tall tree. A few years ago, I heard John Perkins speak, and he said something that has stuck with me. He looked across the large crowd and he said, I have concluded that people need two things. Every person needs Jesus. <laughs> Amen? And then what did he say secondly? Everyone needs a job. Jesus and a job. I think he's onto something. Third question is, are economic decisions exhibiting increasing generosity? Throughout Holy Scripture, we are repeatedly called to joyful generosity. Yes, of our time and talent, but also of our wealth and treasure. And one of the best practical ways to counter economic wealth and money idolatry in your life and mine is to give generously. Giving our money and wealth loosens idolatry's grip on us. And as it loosens that grip, it releases great joy within us. Jesus said, right, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The Bible instructs all of us to make the local church we are a part, the primary place of our generous giving. I say this not in any self-serving way. This is what the scripture teaches for God-honoring ways of giving. See, it's not necessarily how much you have. Rather, the question is, how much of what you have has you? That's the question. Albert Schweitzer put it this way. I love what he said. He said, if you have something you cannot give away, you don't own it, it owns you. Few things in your life and in my life are better barometers of our true apprenticeship with Jesus and our spiritual formation than our open hands of generosity. See, every morning, every morning, we wake up to an economic world. May we be faithful stewards and faithful witnesses for Jesus.